Hello, this is Lee Beat from Birmingham, England. Welcome to the Legendarium. And welcome back to the Legendarium Podcast, episode number 108. This one is uh, our reviews of reviews. The, the Magnificent Seven. Uh, I am Craig Hanks, your host, and I've got just two with us today. Well, he's so special, his bus is a two-seater. It's Ken Johnson. In honor of the 108th episode of the podcast, it has been coincidentally 108 years since the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> and in keeping with that spirit, I will try not to suck. There you go. <laughs> All right. And his hair is so lustrous, we call it El Dorado. It's Todd Wenty. Yes, I know where the gold is located. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today, Magnificent Seven Review. Uh, some of you, especially those who are new to the podcast uh, through our Brandon Sanderson series, may be wondering, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> as I said, as we were wrapping up uh, the stormlight archive i mentioned this is not just a brandon sanderson podcast this is a podcast all about fantasy today we're talking about a specific genre of fantasy and that is the western and make no mistake it is a fantasy subgenre for sure mm-hmm. absolutely uh, so we're going to be talking about that uh, we we threatened to talk about um spy fantasy before maybe maybe the next james bond movie will do that but uh Anyway, so th- yeah, I, I have no shame in talking about this. This is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, and nor should you. Why no, absolutely we? not. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it might come off as unexpected, but I hope people enjoy it. Uh, you don't need to have seen this movie to enjoy this review, I don't think. Uh, it, it's the kind of story that can't possibly be spoiled because everybody's heard it a million no. times. Yeah. So yeah. If you're looking for your Brandon Sanderson tie-in, think of the second trilogy of The Mistborn. You're welcome. Wax and Wayne. There yeah. you go. There, there you go. That's Western. Uh, anyway. Ish. So, uh, the Magnificent quick, Two. <laughs> a quick little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we are going to get back into the more traditional fantasy literature <laughs> genres that you're used to uh, in the first weekend of November. That's the planned weekend right now for the first Wheel of Time episode. So, Ken, are you reading yet? I am. Good. All right. So, it'll be me, Ryan, Ken, and a newcomer. Uh, by the name of Kyle is going to help us through the wheel of time. Uh, so get ready for that. We, yeah, we'll do a couple episodes a month on that. That's the plan right now. Uh, although yeah. I got to say, I'm like a third of the way through it and we could do a bunch of episodes oh, yeah. on at least the first book. Anyway, it's, it's a thick book. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, I do want to mention patreon.com slash legendarium. Make sure you head over there if you haven't yet. Uh, we've got, I think it's like 26 people helping us out there really already. yeah it's, thank you very much everyone and uh, so yeah, we, we are two-thirds of the way to our goal uh our goal is to raise 100 dollars per episode this is all going back into the podcast believe me 100 bucks isn't enough to make us rich every episode <laughs> but it's enough to help us keep the podcast afloat <laughs> uh and we do appreciate your help with that patreon.com slash legendarium anyway so today we are going to do a little uh, a little review off between the three right. of us each of us has prepared a two to three minute review a written review that we'll read and uh, then you can go to twitter our handle is at legendarium pod 
and you can vote on your favorite review there. I'll, I'll pin a poll to our page there so you can, uh, you can go check that out. Uh, anyway, so we'll read all three of these and then we'll discuss the movie. Uh, any objections to my going first? Go. Get me out of the go way. Go ahead. You're, uh, you're ups. Go. All right. Uh, okay. It's baseball season. Upscope. <laughs> wow. Wow. Your well, the, ups. Go. That's the go. first thing I want to bring up is actually a Brandon Sanderson quote. The purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think, but to give you questions to think upon. You'll recognize that from the way of Kings, I mm-hmm. think, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here we go. Going in, I knew almost nothing about the new Magnificent Seven. One of the first things I learned was who directed it. On screen popped up the name of Antoine Fuqua, and I was immediately caught between two warring thoughts. Oh, sweet, and oh, shit. (laughs) This dichotomy held throughout the movie, and it continues its war in my mind even now. A quick recap, a poor village in the Old West is under the heel of a heartless businessman. He announces that he's going to buy the people's land for a paltry fraction of its worth. Unprovoked, he then kills several of the town's men, including Matt Bomer, who was way too good-looking for the Old West anyway. Right. This wanton act of violence spurs the town to hire seven mercenary cowboys to help them drive away the bad guy, avenge Matt Bomer, and save the town. If you've seen the original this is based on, or the Kurosawa masterpiece that that was based on, then I'm not spoiling anything to say that the heroes and the town win the day, but at a heavy cost. Lots of familiar faces pop up, and there were some great performances, including Vincent D'Onofrio playing a scenery-chewing mountain man, two octaves too high, (laughs) Haley Bennett as the vengeful widow, Chris Pratt playing Chris Pratt, and Denzel Washington playing Denzel Washington. (laughs) Nick Pizzolatto's screenplay is mostly serviceable, and Antoine Fuqua does not need to prove to anyone that he knows how to make a movie. Now, I was afraid right from the beginning, though, that Fuqua would not be able to resist turning this David and Goliath revenge story into an eye-rolling retread of contemporary left-wing political posturing, and that's exactly what it turned out to be. A transparent, out-of-place reference to the modern myth of hands up, don't shoot, and a blatant mischaracterization of the nature of capitalism are just two of the most egregious examples. One thing the left has always had over the right is that when they make movies, they're, well, they're just better at it. And while the movie making here is obviously of a high caliber, the political commentary is not so deft. I'm used to such naked preening and preaching when the right makes a movie, see Atlas Shrugged, parts one and two. But over the last hundred years, Hollywood writers and directors have come to dominate the industry by usually showing a more subtle hand. Would that some of that had been on display here. A western is almost always a simple story, and simple stories lend themselves to allegory. Alas, allegory is almost never done right. If the temptation towards allegory is resisted, the storyteller leaves interpretations to the audience. One of my favorite examples of this is Captain America the Winter Soldier, which was a masterclass in not telling the audience what to think. The Magnificent Seven unfortunately gets tossed in the bin with the rest of this decade's many overtly preachy affairs. All of that said, I actually had a good time. There are some fun quips, especially some good-natured but racist ribbing between Chris Pratt and Manuel Garcia Rulfo's Mexican Desperado. (laughs) Oh, good. We got a Mexican. (laughs) And the bad guy body count must push 200 by the time the dust settles. It is a bloody yet forgettable good time. When the original 1960 theme came in with the credits, I was still wrestling with whether this movie was more oh sweet or more oh shit. I still haven't decided, but I do know that while it was fun, this overly serious, overly politicized film doesn't deserve Elmer Bernstein's joyful score. 
Interesting. All, All right. right. Okay. 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 Uh, so the bar has now been set. Yeah. With that review. Interesting. Ready, Todd? I'm ready. Okay, go ahead. Do you ahead. want me to go or do you yeah. want Ken to go? No, I want you to go. All right. All right. So mine is just just a warning for everybody that's going to be listening. Um, in case you haven't figured this out yet, Craig is the political one. I am the morality one. And Ken is the punching one. So I think that's kind of <laughs> where you're going to see these line up. There you go. I probably um, all right. Here we go. Lately, along with the many remakes and reboots coming out of major studios, Hollywood seems to have rediscovered the Western. In the past several years, we have seen the Western as a genre enjoying something of a rebirth. True Grit, 310 to Yuma, The Revenant, The Assassination of Jesse James, and Django Unchanged are just a few. Did you just say Django? Django. Diango. Sorry. I am going to murder you. I'm, I'm having a tough time reading my own notes right now because <laughs> I have to I have to hold it out here. It's <laughs> just sorry. hard. The more I say it in my head, the worse it Django. gets. Django. Django. Django Unchained. <laughs> I'll beat you both later. This doesn't count on my time. Add, add Fuqua's Magnificent Seven to this list and add it as perhaps one of the be better reimaginings of a Hollywood classic. While similar to the original in many ways, it is an original retelling with many departures. As with the original, The Magnificent Seven starts with a small village of farmers threatened with destruction under the heels of an evil mining robber baron, Bartholomew Brogue, prayed by Peter Sarsgaard. Ruthless and greedy, several of the town's inhabitants are slaughtered to make a point to the sheriff on Brogue's payroll as he stands by and watches. Enter Sam Chisholm, played by Denzel Washington, as a sworn warrant officer in the Indian Territories, blah, blah, blah. Approached by the widow of one of the murdered farmers, she offers him all they have to help the town. Gathering something of a dream team of gunmen, cutthroats, gamblers, and societal misfits, they set out to save the town from certain death. Performances by Ethan Hawke as Goodnight Robichaud, Vincent D'Onofrio as Jack Horn, and Chris Pratt as... Did you as just say D'Onofrio? D'Onofrio. Okay. That is that is how he pronounces his name. Is it really? Are you going to make fun of me all night long? Uh, you wait a minute, wait a minute. Never mind, never mind. I'm used to it. <laughs> I was going to say, don't ask him. Sorry, go, go back to <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio as Jock, Jack Horn and Chris Pratt as Josh Faraday provide plenty of opportunities for lighthearted humor, poignant introspection, and increasing drama as the characters learn more about each other as the film goes on. The movie has a beautiful visual palette showcasing striking desert vistas and parts of the American West often unfamiliar to today's moviegoer. The music was also enjoyable, taking cues from the original film, but creating something entirely new. In fact, the iconic Elmer Bernstein theme only shows up in the ending credits. Part of the appeal of the Western and the current trend of remakes and reimagined films could be attributed to the changes in the way movies are made. Today, with better special effects and an audience whose tastes run more to the realistic and less antiseptic, cowboy movies can be grittier, more graphic, and more realistic. The Magnificent Seven certainly lives up to that and more, with great action scenes reminiscent of Braveheart and Saving Private Ryan. Really? Yes. Okay. We'll come back to that if you want. I'll, I'll set and spike yeah. that one any day of the week. But some of the appeal might be attributed to the mythical code of the West, that somewhat mystical balance between what is legal and what is right that serves as the cowboy's guide in their uncertain time and seems to resonate well with us today. While Chris Pratt is certainly cashing in on his current status as sought-after leading man, I was particularly taken with Dionofrio on the side of mountain man lost in advancing society. He delivers a performance full of moments of both conflict and simple clarity that I have always loved in his previous roles. 
Also, seeing Hawk and Washington work together again was a little like training day meets city slickers. In fact, the moments between the two give us the most emotional depth of the film as we get hint throughout that there is far more to their story than we've been allowed to see. The movie is a great popcorn film, though it certainly carries a heavy dose of message and meaning. I recommend it, and I recommend seeing it on a big screen to get the full effect of the cinematography. Right on, man. Yeah, that was good. Nice. I liked it. Totally different direction, and since Ryan yeah. wasn't here, somebody had to say something about cinematography. So there you go. I, I, we'll, we'll get to this, but I totally agree. That was awesome. Yeah, okay. As, as you say, we get hints of backstory throughout, but that is literally all we get from any of them as i will point out okay are you ready right here shall i three two one kinstern all right the key going into a movie like the magnificent seven is tempering expectations obviously (laughs) (laughs) obviously it was never going to be as good as the material that it was based on and once you accept that it becomes a matter of judging the western action movie for what was shooting yeah i I went there what it was shooting to be (laughs) And that's an enjoyable Western action movie with lots of video game music video action. Using that lens, this movie works. The Magnificent Seven reads less as pure storytelling art and more as an attempt to print money by checking all the boxes on the (laughs) Western movie film school how-to checklist. That is what it is. You have a dusty little Western town oppressed by a ruthless mustache-twirling evil industrialist who wants to mine the land on the backs of the humble townsfolk. Toadies violently beat down an uprising led by Chuck's friend Bryce Larkin, so Larkin's hot, underdressed <laughs> wife goes looking for guns led by Denzel Washington's legendary bounty hunter, who just happens to roll into town and, as fate would have it, has an axe to grind with Mr. Twirly Mustache. Woo! <laughs> the mercenary band is formed. Tensions breed. <laughs> I don't know. Tension, tensions what now? Tensions briefly among the ranks. Guns are drawn. Shots fired. Bad guys pile up. Town saved. Good guy underdogs right away. Every box checked. Ding, 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 ding. I loved the action because I am Mr. Punchin and that's my jam. But I liked something else as well. This is where Craig and I are going to disagree just a little bit in the era of overwhelmingly liberal Hollywood where you have to make sure every made-up diversity is pointed out at every moment with big pointy shiny signs and fanfare. Director Antoine Fuqua casts a diverse ensemble without bludgeoning the audience over the head with the fact that this cast is overwhelmingly diverse. I don't disagree with that. Well, okay. that I like that. That's not where we di- disagree. But, oh, okay. okay. Um, you have a you have a black man, you have a Chinese knife thrower, you have a Comanche, you have a white guy who I'm pretty sure might be part bear. Uh, you you have two other white guys, and it really doesn't matter apart from the conflicts straight out of the checklist of standard Western characters. This cast is diverse, and the story just moves on. It's great. The characters are given very little more though than cursory background, and it takes zero time to explain anyone's depths or motivations. That's where we get just hints of backstory. Heck, at one point, Red Harvest, the Indian, shows up, stumbles upon the group, and everyone just kind of goes with it. Yeah, that, <laughs> sorry, we'll go back to that. So, okay, but it really doesn't matter because the draw of the movie is overwhelmingly its cool cast. Denzel was made to play the taciturn cool hero, does a great. Chris Pratt brings his charming Star-Lord on horseback performance. 
that he's pretty much does in every movie. Now, Vincent D'Onofrio may have done my favorite job, probably all of our favorite job of all of them, as the huge grizzly mountain man tracker guy who is a little bit lost out of time and kind of mumbles through everything. D'Onofrio, the way he gets every ounce of talent out of his roles is just amazing. Ethan Hawke and Byung Young Lee have nice chemistry together. Haley Bennett is quite striking as the token girl with arresting blue eyes and costumes that border on ridiculous. Are you just? Yeah, we were all going to go. Are there. you just going to comment on her? looks is that the only thing you noticed about her no on screen but she holds her own in this action setting and that <laughs> thankfully she is also involved involved in exactly zero romantic storylines apart from her husband so yeah i oh sorry go on all right but what makes magnificent seven lack uh, what it, it lacks in depth or original story it sure makes up for in ammo yeah <laughs> 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 the action sequences are robust they're long they're over the top and you it, it is the entire third of the movie and after it's over the audience feels like it needs to just take a deep breath as if they were in it as well it is also shot incredibly Except you can't because your lungs have been punctured pretty much by <laughs> ammo <laughs> and explosions and who doesn't love dynamite <laughs> Nothing better than for a story than well-placed dynamite. Always wanted to blow something up. With great, <laughs> with great angles, and the production team does does an effective job of managing several directions of action and keeping them all from getting too jumbled. They all just play. The bottom line: Magnificent Seven fails to live up to its namesake. It's not magnificent and uh, like its predecessors were, but it is lively. It is fun to eat popcorn to. It doesn't take itself too seriously, and ultimately gives you exactly what you're looking for: an enjoyable time at the movies. Nice. Yeah. I agree. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I just didn't see all the political stuff. Well. That, that was me. That, yeah. I, I, once you mentioned it, I could kind of see where it was. But it I it was actually in, as I was going through, there were some really, really blatant things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're plugged into the the commentary of today, then it was not subtle yeah. at all. No, it was, it was pretty blatant that they were taking pot shots at evil people who happen to be wealthy and people who have nothing are obviously downtrodden and but i i want to i want to get away from that stuff for a, oh shoot yeah i want to get away from that stuff for a moment i thought my computer was about to shut off but uh i, I want to go to the good stuff because uh, like i said toward the end of mine i did have fun i mm-hmm. i did like this movie there was uh, uh, at least half of my brain that was going sweet <laughs> so much fun yeah uh, and uh, a good portion of that is well i mean antoine fuqua's skill he is a very skilled director and also just what uh, todd i think you mentioned in your review is that we just don't get a lot of the western visual anymore in movies and it was really something at the very beginning when you get the the snow-capped mountains and the dusty hills and then the arid plains really nice the thing that i looked at i looked at my wife we we went and saw the movie together i told her that i was going to take her on a date and then i said oh by the way i'm going to be taking notes for the podcast um (laughs) that did not score points by the way um (laughs) it did with me yeah i'm sure thank you (laughs) you can Um, stay in the extra bedroom i may need to um no actually she had a good time too you're Um, sitting in it but the uh, in that case, I'm definitely going to be trying to make up, up to my wife. Um, no, it was it. It felt like I, I recognize that uh, much of the movie was filmed on location in New Mexico. Oh, is that um, where it was? I was wondering. Yeah. Could have been anywhere. Could have been Eastern California. Could have been Southern Utah. Could it could have been Arizona. Been, it could have been all kinds of places. Yeah, it, any place where there's desert. It feels very much like it was a very representative Southwest United yeah. States mm-hmm. film, um, which is. I, I think is something that that really has been out of the public awareness. Now, certainly, 
uh, when the Magnificent Seven, the original Magnificent Seven in the 1960s was shot, it was shot uh, primarily near the near the New Mexico area, Southern California, all those kinds of areas as well. Um, but that was during the period of time when John Wayne was producing a movie every other month and when uh, the spaghetti westerns were coming out. So everybody was used to seeing sand and sand and sweat. Right. Um, so I, I think there was a there's a there's a generation of moviegoer that hasn't seen uh, what all of these places that because we live in the state of Utah, much many of us have seen firsthand. We know what those things look like in real life. And that's why right. for me watching that, and I said, you really need to see this. This is a big screen movie. This isn't one to watch it on TV mm. at home if you really want to get a, a, a grasp of that. That was, it was something I really enjoyed with those visuals is I actually just got back from visiting my in-laws in St. George, which is in Southern Utah. So I was watching this movie under the red cliffs of Southern Utah. Nice. And I mean, that's you don't get much more nope. southwestern yeah. united states than that spot and and because i've spent so much time there it you get to the point where it just kind of seems humdrum yeah. i see the red cliffs of st george and i'm just or zion national park and at a certain point you're just like well whatever there it is again yeah you, you but then you watch it but then you go to this movie or any number of other westerns that are well shot and you see it through somebody else's eyes, yeah. somebody who finds the the best vistas and the you know shoots it in, in the best way that makes you go, no, nah, this is awesome. Yeah, we live in an awesome place. In fact, there were there were a few moments that I was when I was looking at the film and I was thinking to myself, has he got filters on this? Has he at the very the uh, the last part? That was actually the one misstep I thought at the uh, end with the voiceover and yep. the graves. That was all CGI. Uh, or at at least heavily filtered, and, and it was awful. And I want to come back to that, but we'll we can come back to that later if you want, yeah. or we can talk about it yeah, right now. Yeah, just talk about it now. That's fine. So one of the things that I was watching for as I as I followed this film, uh, I actually went back and I rewatched the original Magnificent Seven today. Uh, okay. Getting ready nice. to come back and and see and and work on this. How much more fun is that movie? You know. It's. It just seems like it's, it has a lighter step. It's different. It, um, yeah. There, there's something about, and I'm a, I'm a real Steve McQueen fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Yul Brynner, as a as a cowboy, was a little bit of a stretch for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure I don't know what you mean. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. There's so many. Well, now you can feed yourself. You know, I. I I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it just it, it was different. But uh, but Steve McQueen. Uh, that was that was a movie that I think was designed and written around Steve McQueen just being Steve McQueen and hanging out in the desert. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun that way, but it was different because the scope of the film and the way that they approached the process um, was was completely well. It was it was Hollywood of the nineteen sixties, not Hollywood with blockbusters of the of the. 21st century and so there were a lot of there were a lot of things about that 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 were more fun uh much more lighthearted. um boy you think we're a little bit racist about the way that we approach things there's the scene in the magnificent <laughs> seven when all of the townspeople come in to greet them wow um yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna mince words on that one we're just gonna leave it alone um but one of the one of the similarities that i liked uh, or one of one of the things that they went out of their way to do with this film that I really liked was the repeat of that scene at the end in the Seven Samurai. At the end of the film, they do this pan shot across of three graves, 
with the samurai swords stuck in them uh, and a little right. bit of voiceover. Is it not four? It's, th- it's three in the... It, it, yeah. It's three right away. What happened to the fourth one? No, it was three in the seven samurai. Three three of them lost their lives. It was four in... It's four in Magnificent Seven. I'll bet you money. Well, they only show three graves. Okay. But f- I only three right away. I'll, I'll, I'll uh-huh. go back and check it again. Okay. I'll right. go back and check it again because the shot is... Of those yeah, three. Yeah, I know the shot you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. And to end it with that same shot, only this time with the four, um, on Boot Hill of the of the members of the Magnificent Seven, I was I was pleased that there was some time taken to pay that homage. There are lots of little homages to both throughout yeah. the films. Um, like um, the line, I've been offered a lot for my work before, but I've never been offered everything, shows up in both films. Um, little little widow's mite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've been offered twenty. You know, I get paid a lot for what I do. Well, all right now it's twenty dollars. Twenty dollars seems like a lot. Um, let's do it for real. The the uh, scene with the shooting cups. Oh yeah, yeah. Where they're where with, he gets yeah, a good night and yeah. and and he turns around and he knifes the guy for knifes the guy in a quick draw contest. Yep, that one's in the original as well, and so is all of that really, really, really bad dialogue. <laughs> and if God didn't want him sheared, he wouldn't have made him sheep. Um, another piece of of iconic dialogue that stays that stays intact. Um, more more done to try and stay true to. Uh, or to pay homage to the original Western than to the Seven Samurai. Um, yeah, I didn't really notice a lot uh, there. It, it, yeah. Oh, wait, what was I thinking of? Sorry, I'll come back to that. But there are there are a couple that are that I think are telling. One of them is that um, this time around it was designed more as an institutional bad, uh, which is much more like the. Seven Samurai. It's a. It's it's part of the it's part of the culture. It's part of the process. It's not banditos that are running around. You're it's, talking about in this one. In this one, okay. yeah. yeah. It, it's and and in the original Seven Samurai, these are well organized, well well disciplined, and it's part of their societal system. It's not just bandits running around trying to survive themselves, and so that piece of it, I think, is an is a connection. Yeah, you can take issue with it. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the things that I that I think was. Um, more similar than dissimilar between between this one and the Seven Samurai, um, and the way that the uh, this, <laughs> the scene when they show up with all of their farming implements. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh great! Oh, yeah. They have pitch great. <laughs> Hopefully, they don't have torches. Um, I, again, in the in the first in the in the nineteen sixties version, that never that that kind of an issue never pops up. Uh, they just stand around and say, well, we think we need guns. Well, no, you need gunmen. You know, let's right. let's kind of work with that. Um, and in the Seven Samurai, you've got your villagers who don't have don't have access to the samurai sword. So what do right. they have? They have farming they implements. Have, yeah, so we've got a we've got a similar kind of a situation. So I think that there's some real um, some real effort made to take pieces and pay homage in the in the current version of the film that yeah. they didn't decide to go into in the in the one in the 1960s. Ken, you've been a little bit silent. Do I, you want to say some things? I got, I got little to offer. I mean, we're all kind of, we're all kind of on the same, uh, on on the same page here. And I'm like, well, you know, you guys are saying it all. I'm, I liked it. I <laughs> let me, uh, let me. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a fun, a fun show. And I, I really, like I said, I didn't go into it expecting much, and I was not disappointed. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so there you go. It, it, 
the what they made up or what they lacked in in story. I mean, because the original Magnificent Seven was there. There was a lot more character interaction. There was a lot more drama between the seven. Yes, there was. Uh, there was a lot more inner conflict between uh, the character Ted Knight's character, not Ted Knight's. Uh, Ted Danson. You're thinking of Ted, Ted Danson. Yes, Ted Danson was in the first one. <laughs> no, um, he probably could have been, <laughs> but uh, I can't remember his name now. But anyway, uh, the the, um, uh, the the gentleman. You know. Uh, anyway, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, there was a lot more, a lot more inner turmoil, a lot more introspection in the first one, and that's where the the um, drama was based. Mm-hmm. The the uh, the action of protecting the town was really the vehicle to explore. The characters, whereas this one was, the characters are just there to get to the action. The action is the purpose yeah. unto all, itself. All we yeah. want is to get to the guns and and get to the explosions, and that characters just get us there. Which which was a ton of fun. I gotta say, they they did the action scenes really really well. Oh yeah, it was shot beautifully. I yeah. um I I was reminded speaking earlier of uh, of thinking about doing spy fantasies. This reminded me a lot of like a James Bond spy film, in uh. In that you would have, say you had, what was his name? Red Harvest? Red Harvest. He shot a guy through the right shoulder, killed him instantly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Chris Pratt gets shot in the chest five times (laughs) and just keeps crawling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, that's the difference on. that's the difference between righteousness and evil <laughs> i guess so but you know there is that sort of the you know that john mcclain thing where you, you get shot who knows how many times and you just keep you going just keep going you know versus the bad guy it's like stubs his toe and then which is the difference between being a named character and yep. being bad guy number 14 right because the reality is probably you know, the, while while Chris Pratt's character probably could have gotten shot during that period of time with the weapons that they had and still keep moving forward as he did, so should everybody else. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not I'm not putting that out there as like, oh, this bothered me so much. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it is worth right. a little it's chuckle. And, and it's it's one of those things that moves it into the fantasy genre where it's more about telling a really nice, clean, simple story than it is about the gritty realism that we right. get in the visuals yeah. right exactly. now here's the question do you think it really is a nice clean simple story yeah yeah i think it's told simply i think it's told simply i'm not sure it's so clean um and the reason that i'm saying that is because when we find out in the very oh should we say spoilers does anybody care nobody cares we're, nobody we're cares pretty much yeah we're, we're a fantasy podcast and if they're if they're with us then we're in good shape they've paused it to go watch the film right there you go um <laughs> the, <laughs> yes at at the at the very end of the film when you get this you get this you, at the very beginning you get the the conversation between denzel washington and uh what's her bucket ellie blah 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 ellie something Haley Bennett. Um, oh, Haley Bennett. Haley Bennett. There yeah. you go. Um, and he says, you know, do you seek revenge or justice? And she says, I, I, I seek revenge, but justice will do, or something or like I, that. I seek righteousness. I seek righteousness, but revenge, but revenge will, do. will do. And we find out later on that the thing that hooks him is the same revenge motive yeah. for that individual on a very personal level. And I'm not sure that that's a simple story anymore. Now really? Yep. Really? And, uh, and the reason that I'm going to go there is because if it were just simple, for me at least, 
it would be good and bad. We move on. It's it's not this. It, it starts to feel at that point like we're we're pulling a little moment from Les Miserables where we say, oh, these families are so intertwined. They keep running into each other over and over again, making their lives more miserable as time goes on. I'm just waiting for The Magnificent Seven Rides 2. By the way, The Magnificent yeah. Seven had a sequel in the 1960s called The Magnificent Seven Ride, in which they did mm. all of the exact same things that they had done in The Magnificent Seven with a different group of characters, <laughs> reference it, with the exception of one. There was one of the, ma- one of the survivors that actually shows up um, long enough to get the rest of them recruited, if I remember correctly, and they did all of the same stunts, gags, and bits but on a soundstage instead of shooting it oh, in wow. location. <laughs> it was it was one of the worst fun movies that I've ever sat and watched through because I just laughed. And my children kept saying, what is it going to get good? Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I was left with this feeling that we're going to, that that uh, if there is a sequel, which Hollywood no, is always no. searching for, which Hollywood is always searching for, they, yeah. Sam no. Chisholm was going to wind up face to face with Bartholomew Brogue's bastard son who comes back to try and take back revenge for the revenge that's... Yeah. Is he going to be from Vomembre? He probably will. <laughs> he probably will. Because he is going to be a bastard son. Yeah. Uh, I'm still going with simple story on this. Right. It, it, it's, there's there's really nothing to it. Good guys, bad guys. It's it, not a complicated uh, like, plot. Like Ken it was, hilariously it, talked about the mush, mustache twirling villain. Yes. Who, yeah. in my opinion, was the laziest piece of the whole story. And oh, there were some yeah. lazy parts of this he story. He absolutely was. Yeah. And it, it was, I mean, it was so paint by numbers that you could see what was coming before. I, I called uh, while they were riding into town and, and the bad guy was coming that that uh Haley Bennett was going to sh- was going to end up killing him. I yeah. mean that w- that was an easy that was an easy see and, and you know and here uh Denzel gets his he gets his piece of revenge against him but ultimately she gets to shoot him and there's your spoiler. Uh, yep. But I mean and, and you could just see I I called you know Chris Pratt dying because that just was easy to see and there were there were a lot of it was not ambitious uh, twist storytelling. No, and, and, no. and it wasn't designed I to be. Appreciate, so. and I appreciate that. I don't need every every story, every movie to be you know full of intrigue right. in some way. I I don't make the mistake of thinking that I'm complaining. I'm not. Right. No. But I and, I do think it is. There's not much to the story. Yeah. I actually thought, like I said, the villain was the worst part, and I I thought that he was the worst part not because he was so simple, but because. Uh, but because the I don't know who to blame if it was the writer or the director, but somebody took him and and made him made, him, and made, made yeah. him represent something yeah. contemporary. And, and in this case, it was capitalism, that scary capital C capitalism. capitalism. You know that that so many on the on the left are are want to. Uh, caricature these days yep. he doesn't represent capitalism on the terms that the movie sets he is he represents the end result of anarchism he's a yes. he's a strong yeah. man who's able to uh to bring his form of order to an anarchic society out in the old west so it, it's they they really swung hard and whiffed on that guy. And in that in that aspect, um, if you go back and look at the original Magnificent Seven, the idea of the Cadillo, the 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 strong man that runs whatever he runs, mm-hmm. that's that very much is part of the uh, of Mexican history. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, but not. I, I mean, while it exists here, the idea that um, the idea that this story paints is like so many other. 
uh, caricature westerns of like like Ken, like you point out with the with the paint by numbers, that if you got enough money, you can always buy the law. Um, you can always put the sheriff in your pocket if you've got enough money. And I'm not sure that that was really how the West ran. No, and that's right. again, that's this is a Western fantasy. It's right. not the old West was not nearly so old West as and so we lawless. Think of it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, but it's easier for us to say that having you know we live in utah and we know the history of the old west i think better than a lot of and i think folks would have reason to know a, a, a lot of us have you know i have a i have a grandfather that one time uh was a member of a mounted posse nice to go chase down some boys that knocked over the riverton bank wow um and they they checked out some they they borrowed some 3030s from the hardware store and <laughs> And rode out to find them in Old Man Harrison's barn they or whatever nice. it was. <laughs> they, I didn't mean, they didn't have their own thirty thirty. They didn't have their own thirty because they were farmers. In yeah, but everybody in back <laughs> well, then had a gun. Not my grandpa. Wow, <laughs> he knew how to shoot, but he didn't own a gun. <laughs> and uh, you know, we 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 grew up with that. Uh, we grew up with that around here, and so it's it, it is different for us to look at it and say, yeah, okay. You, you probably got more people carrying guns in New Jersey than you did out here sometimes. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's see. Let's see. Oh, Ken, what? you talked about the diversity. And I did yeah. just want to point out, I actually really, I agree. I really liked that. Um, I didn't, I, I've seen the original Magnificent Seven, but it's been a long time. And so I didn't have all the characters fresh in my mind. And so at no point was I like, wait, that guy wasn't, Chinese that guy wasn't an Indian you know I I wasn't worried about that and they never took the time to be like okay and now we have a diverse group of all of the marginalized uh, pieces of 19th century American society no they just brought them all together and it was what it was I I like exactly and I I loved that and the fact that they were diverse and and they were diverse for their skills that well we're supposed to have that that they were brings up another supposed to have another thing which was that uh i could see some people not being so happy about these characters and how they were represented because there was a lot of stereotyping going on right oh the chinese guy is like super good with like martial arts and knives and stuff and then this there's you got the the red indian guy who likes to scalp people and, and eat uh, hearts of animals and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, eat, and, and he still uses livers. and he uses a bow and arrow through the entire yeah. show until right. the very last possible second yeah, yeah. anyway so there were some things like big that big fight where, with the tomahawk well, and knife and there <laughs> there was the there was the bad guy indian who had the uh, the soldier's uniform and you know and, and it's same same thing. It's, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so so there were some things where I thought ah that might make some people uncomfortable. But at some point, but, but as, it, as somebody in one of my classes that I was taking in social psychology pointed out, at some point stereotypes happen because in because there's cases, a measure of truth. There was there was some truth. To it that. was it was earned somewhere, whether yeah. it's universally true or not. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, usually. Usually. Yeah, usually. Um. Let's see what else. You guys got anything else, Todd? You had like three cards full of things you wanted to bring up so one of the things that i that i wanted to talk about and we'll, um, we'll make this uh last point or two and then we'll get to uh final to, thoughts to the bigger stuff yeah okay um yeah man i wanted to have so much more fun with this um ready set have fun go so the, <laughs> the gatling gun oh yeah and and the gatling gun for me is is kind of what so i was going through and saying all right 
what are the elements of a fantasy? You know, when we talk about fantasy and we, we talk about fantasy literature, what are the elements for me that, that make something considered a fantasy rather than a period story or rather than an, than a thriller or any of those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. And for me, they, they were, there, were a couple of, there were a couple of basic points. It has to be in familiar but foreign setting. I mean, it has to be similar to us, but different enough that we recognize that we could, we are not in that place. Okay. Um, it has to be, in many cases, simpler but deadlier. Um, we have to yeah. we have to feel like things are simpler for our primary characters and for the world at large, but that there's uh, evil and danger and death looking lurking at every at every corner, right. especially with something that's going to take over. Um, there has to be some kind of a quest to either save or redeem. Um, and there has to be a transformation. Most of the time it's handled as a coming, of, or many times it's handled as a coming of age story or a discovering of a power inside ourselves, um, especially as it relates to magic. The piece that then that for me was really hard to figure out for this film to say whether or not it was, it would fit the definition of fantasy was the idea of the magic system. Oh dude, it is all over the place. You've, yeah. got, you've got people who can fire from the hip and hit a can at 50 paces. <laughs> It is yeah. now. There is a, three times in a row. There is well, a it, there is a piece of this that is uh, unbelievable skill, but it is also the access to the level of technology that becomes really the magic system for most of these kinds of situations. While everybody might have access to firearms, not everybody had access to the Colt Peacemaker. While everybody might have access to a rifle, not everybody had access to a Winchester or a Remington 3030 repeater. Or a Gatling gun. Or a Gatling gun. <laughs> and when you talk about when you talk about evil magic that is on the verge of oppressing everything in its dog, uh, not everybody has access to a Gatling gun. And that Gatling gun scene, the scenes where Except they... Except for Mr. Twirly Mustache and, and his s- capitalism. The scenes where they... <laughs> that's, which how, he, that's how he bought it, with all of his capitalism. With all of his capitalism. And his, and his mercenary band, the the black... Oh, what was it? Like a renegade group of... Uh, it was Blackwater is what it was. Yeah, it was uh, Blackwater, yeah. let's be honest, right? Um, these these uh, civilian contractors, um, but whatever they were called. Um, oh, hired thugs. But, but the... the as as cheesy and as uh, slightly offensive as that was to me, to see somebody pull out a Gatling gun and use it as a prop device and then show what kind of <laughs> devastation that thing caused, it really was one of the one of the most horrific pieces of of nineteenth uh, century technology. Oh yeah, battle changing technology yeah. that ever existed. And the fact that they were running around saying, he's got a Gatling gun. He's got a Gatling gun. It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly yeah. how you would respond. Yeah. Um, speaking of Blackwater, let me just go back to that real quick. I did notice that no matter how hard they tried to, to set up that little, uh, that little political piece, who comes to save the day? They don't call on the government. I mean, like you said, the sheriffs have been bought off, right? And mm-hmm. so... They yeah. hire a bunch of mercenaries, and oh. I mean, uh, and uh, what's his name, Sam Chisholm. Chisholm. Sam Chisholm. He he does make a point a couple times. Um, yeah, I'm a duly sworn warrant officer. Sworn warrant officer, but no, he's a bounty hunter. He's a mercenary. That's what he, That's is. What he is. That's what all the rest of them are. So basically, so the community comes together to solve their problems with the help of somebody that they hired. What we're saying yeah. is that Dog the Bounty Hunter shows up and takes on Blackwater <laughs> and wins. <laughs> Something like that. I think that's what I think that's what we got. That was the moral of the story. <laughs> anyway, it's but you know I I just I only bring that up because I did chuckle a little bit because yeah it, the Blackwater reference was really obvious but mm-hmm. at the same time it's like you you 
it's like fighting fire with fire he then hired uh blackwater to save them from blackwater right. anyway you have to there when you you're go. in the, when you're in the lawless west so anyway what uh i but i kind of interrupted you did you want no to get that's, back to that? that's that's the direction that we're yeah. going it's just that the that the idea when i when i talk to people and they say oh well, that doesn't sound like fantasy it doesn't sound like fantasy i'm like it is it is absolutely everything that oh. exists in fantasy yeah. it's just because it is closer to us in that familiar versus foreign area that we that we occasionally blow it off and say no it's just period piece no no it's really not it's, i've read some period literature there's nothing period about yeah, th- that. Yeah, this no. isn't Bleak House. This <laughs> this might be it might be period setting, but it is not period correct literature. No. Correct. Yeah, I I like that a lot. I want to ruminate on that more after we're done with the podcast. <laughs> um, the three rules again. What were they? Re- really quickly. Familiar but For, foreign. Okay. Simpler yeah. but deadlier, and a quest yeah. to save or redeem. Nice. Yeah, I like that it a hits lot. All three. Um, and I'll Especially I'll be looking here. for that now. What? I say it hits all three. Yeah. So. Uh, okay, cool. So do we want to do some final thoughts? Sure. Or or did you have any uh, other momentous pieces of intellectual uh, <laughs> propensity for <laughs> there, us? There was very little intellectual only, propensity, but it was so about. much fun. <laughs> only you could find the deep intellectual aspects of this movie, though. No, that's not true. I did. No, you you could have, Ken. I no, could oh, have. Wait. wait. No, you couldn't. Okay. I was going to say, with what map? I don't... <laughs> <laughs> We all we all look for uh, we all look for the things that are deep for us. I probably could have found it, but I looked at it and I just went, "Yeah, where's popcorn? I'm having I, fun." I loved, I really re- and and I mentioned it in my review. I really enjoy seeing Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington <laughs> together. They are wonderful foils for each other. They have been since Training Day. Yeah, I loved the and especially, um, seeing Robichaud. As, as such a seeing Ethan Hawke play such a flawed, unsure, unconfident character, uh, and then of course bring him back around toward the end, um, but have the two of them have this connection that says, you know, we've been through we've we've been through a lot more, and the moment where he says, "What we lose in the fire, we'll find in the ashes," yeah. to have that come back a couple of different times, that was something I'm going to remember. Uh, I am going to remember that line. That was one of the things that I loved about this film is that it had some quotable yeah it's immediately good one-liners. quotable lines yeah and to, some in, of them were blatant ripoffs of the original and that's fine absolutely absolutely I, inspiration inspired by but you know what <laughs> that's okay if george lucas was inspired by uh kurosawa buck if, rogers yeah if uh the guy who wrote the who did the uh, spaghetti westerns uh blatantly stole from Kurosawa, right? Um, let's let's be honest. He's influenced a lot of popular cinema, sure. Um, and why not? And maybe off the air, we'll talk a little bit about some things that I think were going on with the the stories we tell are always bound in our time. And so when you go and look at the 1960s version of um, Magnificent Seven, you're going to see things if you're familiar with the 1960s and 70s. Uh, 1950s, 60s, 70s era, you're going to see things and say, ah, that's obviously part of their time. In our time, we're obviously going to be able to see things and people will for generations if they ever decide to watch this movie ever in the future. Mm. Um, But I think when we go back and look at the Kurosawa film, I think there are some very poignant things about where that one is located in history as well. 
right on. Uh, but I don't care about that right now. So <laughs> that's let's because do some final. That's because it's now. <laughs> what would uh, so some final thoughts? Basically, let's just do. Uh, do you recommend that people see it and why? I'll give you thirty seconds I, each. Ken, I, I absolutely recommend that you see it. I, I recommend you see it on the big screen because it's it's shot to be seen in big and loud and 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 that kind of technology. It is it's fun to watch. It's not you know very much. There's not very much there there. You're just going to watch and be entertained mm-hmm. for an yep. hour and a half, and that's fine. That's really at the very heart. That's the point of modern cinema. Todd? Last of the summer blockbusters for this year. Go watch it, buy some popcorn, turn your brain off, and enjoy the view. Yep. All right. Uh, I think I would agree with that. I, In my review, I know I brought up a lot of the political stuff, but I think most people don't care the way that I do. <laughs> about that stuff. I think that's about right. I'm glad you're showing that level of awareness, Craig. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Uh, Most people don't care. If you don't care, then you're not going to worry about that sort of thing and you're going to love the fun of this movie. If you do care, uh, then depending on which side of the aisle you come from, you might love it, you might hate it, but uh, I I can almost guarantee a good time for people who don't mind a 200 plus body count. (laughs) Uh, let's let's well, get real. This was pretty violent. Oh man. Well, there, yeah, they compared they to Star up. Wars. I mean, they blew up a planet. We just blew up a village. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's call it. Uh, I, I'm surprised. I I kind of thought we'd go a half hour on this one, but uh, we did a full 50 minutes. Wow. So we th- like to talk. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, for those of you who are donors, three dollars or more at Patreon.com gets you access to some behind-the-scenes audio. Uh, we got a few minutes before we started. We'll uh, keep rolling for a few minutes after we're finished up here. Maybe we'll talk about uh, Todd's uh, overly intellectual crap <laughs> about this uh, movie. You but only say it because it's not <laughs> crap you came up with. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, like I said, patreon.com slash legendarium. If you donate $3 or more, we almost always have some behind-the-scenes audio, just stuff that we didn't feel like uh, we wanted to put in the episode. Uh, you can listen to it there. Uh, donate, be happy, make us happy, and we will see you guys in, I think, two weeks for uh, Cosmere 101. I think that's right. So that's that's coming up before we get to the Wheel of Time. Cosmere 101 uh, is going to be a ton of fun. We're going to learn all about the crap we don't know. The, and we didn't even know we didn't know after so that reading. we can go back and reread all of the books in the next year exactly. right, while we're reading Rubber Jordan while so, we're reading yeah. Sanderson fans prepare two weeks Cosmere 101 Ryan's going to take us through that one thanks again for listening we'll see you guys all then yeah.